Our text from today comes to us from uh, Jonah, and I'm, I'm going to read both chapters 2 and 3. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah upon the dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we don't perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not this is God's word to us. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for your word. And God, thank you for Jonah. God, I pray that whatever wisdom we would hear today would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you that maybe weren't with us last week, we, um, we're talking about the story of Jonah. We started in chapter one, and we said that, you know, Jonah is a book that is um, talked about a lot. I mean, a lot of us know the story, but a lot of us read it 
particular way. And the particular way that we read it is that Jonah is the prime example of someone who was disobedient to God and um, is a good uh, sort of moral lesson for us for why we shouldn't be disobedient to God. The last week we also talked about that you know Jonah kind of has good reasons to be, be disobedient to God. That God's request to Jonah is kind of an absurd request. It's, um, as Robert Alter said, it, it's like asking a Jewish person in the 1940s to go speak to the Nazis in Germany. And so Jonah, while he is disobedient, and I agree with that, he, he has a reason. He comes from a long line of prophets that have reasons to disobey God. We said, too, about this story that um, a lot of times we give Jonah credit for repenting halfway through chapter 1. So we read his actions on the ship. You remember on the ship when he um, finally gives up and, and says, you know what, it, the cause of this storm is me. Throw me in and the storm will calm for you. We often say that he's repented there. But actually, we know from chapter 4, which we'll get to next week, we know that he's not repentant. And so we said last week that Jonah is um, disobedient all the way through, and as Phyllis Tribble says, is protesting the love of God. This is who he is at his core. And we ask the question of ourselves, I hope we ask the question this week, of how are we disobedient like Jonah? Because a lot of times it's easy to see this silly story, to see his sort of absurd behavior and say, well, I, I would never do that. I would never be disobedient like that, right? I would always follow God. I would always listen, but, you know, we say our prayer of confession every week. We, we know the ways that we mess up. And a lot of us would never be put in such an absurd situation where God's, you know, voice comes out of the heavens and we have to respond with where are we going to go, right? We sort of get an easy pass, but Jonah does not. So this week, if we're willing to admit that in some ways we are disobedient like Jonah, we are in need of transformation, we might say, I think my question for us this week is, what does it mean to transform? What does it mean to be repentant? Jonah isn't repentant with his actions, even though his actions, you know, he's, he's kind of going one way, right? And then he's suddenly going another, and as we saw from our text today, he's literally going the opposite direction. If that isn't true repentance or transformation, the question is, well, what is? What does it actually mean to repent? I won't, I won't tease you the entire sermon. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to show my cards really early here. Repentance, there's kind of two major ideas in the Bible about repentance. One is from the Hebrew, one is from the Greek. And I'm going to do something that my preaching professors told us to never do. He said, never, ever talk about the original languages, because no one wants to hear that. But, I, you know, I think you're actually a pretty intelligent crowd, to the point of intimidating me sometimes. And so we're, we're going to talk about the original languages. But not, not in a way that I'm all high and, high and mighty, okay? Just stick with me here. There's two ideas. The Hebrew idea, and I, I'm not much of a Hebrew reader, but um, my lovely wife and our co-pastor is. And so... She tells me that the idea of Hebrew repentance is something like being overturned. And we actually heard it in our story today. Yet 40 days in this city shall be overturned. And the idea of being overturned is something like being conquered. That 
one day you were sort of in control of yourself and then the next day you're overturned and, and maybe you're not. Maybe there's something new that's controlling you. Um, it, it's, it's the idea of, yeah, I, I like the idea of being conquered, of being um, changed fundamentally from the inside. And this kind of connects with the Greek idea, and, and this is where we're going to get real nerdy, okay? The Greek idea of repentance comes from the word metanoia. So can you say that with me just real quick? Say meta, metanoia. Metanoia. See, and now you all know a new Greek word. Metanoia is, is broken down into two parts. There's meta and then noia. Meta means, uh, it's kind of like from metaphysics, if you've heard that word before. It means after, it means beyond. In some cases, it can mean over. It has a lot of different meanings. And then noia is sort of universally translated as mind. So it means like after mind or beyond mind, or what I learned this week from Cynthia Bourgeau, who, if, if you haven't read any of her work, Cynthia Bourgeau, run, don't walk, people, all right, run. Go, go grab her books, whatever she's done, she's wonderful. But she says that metanoia sort of means, um, it's something like stepping into a larger mind. It, it means going from wherever you are here in this small little mind, and then stepping into something that's much bigger and grander. Stepping into a larger mind. Or, as Paul says in Colossians, I believe, it's something like putting on the mind of Christ. It means that you remove yourself, your ego, from the situation, and you try to embody something else. You try to step into something larger. This is what true transformation is. But what that looks like will kind of depend on our context. So now we go into the belly of the fish. This is the part of the story that a lot of us remember, right? That Jonah is swallowed. If you ask anyone about Jonah, they would say, oh yeah, that's the one that was swallowed by the fish or the whale or whatever it was. And this is the place where actually we would expect transformation. So across literature, if you were to do some, some research in books, you would see that the belly of the whale is sort of universally this place of transformation for characters and novels. Um, think about the story. Has anyone seen or read the book Pinocchio? Do you remember that, the Disney movie? Yeah. So the belly of the whale is where Pinocchio transforms, at least in, in the story version. It's where you know, Pinocchio is this puppet who's on this... Um, this journey to become a real boy, right? And um, it, it's, it's tough to become a real person, and, and Pinocchio learns this over time, but eventually um, he has to go to the belly of the whale, and I don't want to spoil this for anybody, but it's in the belly of the whale that he's presented with the option of whether or not he's actually going to succeed on this quest, and he does. He comes out, and he's a real boy after he leaves the belly of the fish. And this is true across other literary examples, and I won't spend a lot of time giving you those, but the belly of the fish, the pit, the abyss, these are all places of transformation. And so people reading this, whenever it was written, would have known that this, we we're expecting transformation here. And as you read the psalm, it, it calls it a psalm of thanksgiving here. As you read this prayer, you think, oh, that's, it's so beautiful. I called to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. 
It's this beautiful prayer, and we think, oh, this, this Jonah who was so disobedient before, he turned himself in, he was thrown overboard, and now he's offering these beautiful, beautiful prayers to the Lord. And we think he's transformed. And, and it sort of looks like he is, because it says the Lord spoke to the fish and spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. But I wonder if something else is going on here. You know, you could, you could read it as true transformation, right? But if we, if we know the end of the story, and we know that Jonah's really not transformed, he really hasn't stepped into this larger mind, we have to ask, well, what else is going on here? And Phyllis Tribble, this, this commentator I've been reading for this series, she says that if you, if you just point out and count how many times Jonah says the word I, it, it's like tenfold the amount of times he references God. So he says, I, me, my, blah, 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 blah. Jonah's talking a lot about himself in this prayer. And she points out that it's, it's really selfish. It's not a prayer of transformation. And also she points out that it's actually entirely plagiarized. So Jonah takes all, and these are all psalms from uh, David. They're psalms from, I think, parts of Job. But Jonah has sort of this mix and match of phrases that he's taken from other parts of the Bible to offer this beautiful prayer to God. And it seems to work. He spewed out upon the dry land. And then the story starts over. The story begins again. It begins the same way that it began before. It's the same formula. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and that says a second time, saying what God said the first time, get up, go to Nineveh, and tell them that their evil has risen before me. This is sort of a signal to us as the readers. This is, this is a way for us to sort of get in our mind that, okay, the story's starting over, but something different is going to happen, and, and, and watch. Jonah sets out and goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So the author is not, not only telling us, hey, the story's starting over, but actually, Everything that happened before, maybe the opposite will happen this time. Not the exact opposite, but Jonah is doing something very, very different here. And so he sets out, and he goes to Nineveh. And the author goes out of their way to tell us that the city of Nineveh is three days across. It takes three days to walk across this whole city. And in Jonah, it says... <laughs> author tells us only goes one day's journey in, right? Because Jonah's not repentant. He doesn't really want to be there. He's just doing what he needs to do to get by. He's just complying. He's just going through the motions. And so he goes a day's walk into the city, and maybe at the most absurd point in this whole story, even more than a whale swallowing him and him surviving three days, he speaks one line to these evil and wicked people. One line after going one day's walk into a city that is three days' walk wide. And he says, yet 40 days, and this city will be overturned. And you see how quick the narrative changes. Suddenly, everyone's repenting. In fact, so many people are repenting. News gets to the king, and the king writes a decree, and everyone is sorry for how they've behaved. They've changed. It's really quick and silly because we know that, you know, if, if you've read other Old Testament prophets, you know how much they speak. 
I mean, just go look at the book of Isaiah. It's filled with these oracles. And the oracles, even though they're not always spoken to the same group or the same subject, they're really long. I mean, you would expect a prophet to have a lot more to say to the city. But Jonah, he didn't really have time for that. Because he doesn't really want to be there. Because he doesn't really want to have to deal with these people. Because he doesn't really love them. He doesn't really want them to survive. He actually wants God's wrath to come down on them. So he walks a little bit in, and he whispers the words he needs to whisper, and then... He's going to take off. But before he can leave, this is the beginning of chapter 4, and we'll get into this next week. We're told that this was very displeasing to Jonah. All of this change, all these people with repentant hearts. And he became very angry, it says. He became very angry. He's begrudgingly compliant. Have any of you ever been in a situation in your life where you're begrudgingly compliant? (laughs) Some people don't want to speak because their spouses are next to them. (laughs) Begrudgingly compliant. I worked at Starbucks for a number of years in college and even through grad school. And um, Starbucks is an organization, I hope I don't get in trouble for this, putting this online, but they're an organization, they're constantly changing things because they're trying to become more efficient, you know, increase their bottom line, blah, 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 blah. But it was like, it was like every other week there was new protocol to make this drink this way or to do this this way. And then I, I remember there was one time they started putting us in stations. So normally as a barista, you would like float around and you did anything and everything that you needed to and you had to, right? Just to get the job done. But this time, you know, they had this whole new system. They were gonna organize their workers. And you had one station and you stay there and you don't move and you can't move because it messes up the rest of the system. And and I tell you all that to say that I got to the point and the reason I knew I I had to leave there and find something else for part-time work was I was so done with all of the changes. I was so done with all of the new rules and the new way to do it because I knew the old way, you know? I was trained under an old system and I, I knew what I was doing and I knew the way to be efficient and I didn't want to do anything and I just would show up and I didn't enjoy my job anymore, didn't want to be there, I was, begrudgingly compliant. I did what I had to do. I did the bare minimum. We've all been there. We've all been there. Jonah is upset, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, because he didn't really think that God would save these people because these people were so terrible. Like, and, and I think we talked last week about if you just read the book of um, Nahum, you, you'll see how terrible Nineveh is. I mean, it's the, the most wicked of all wicked cities. And I, we're not given, like, details of what they do, but I told you they're, they're part of the Assyrian Empire, and they're doing what empires do. They're conquering people. They're taking lands. They're creating slaves. They're doing all of the things that are sinful in the Bible. Jonah doesn't actually want them to live, and so... He's upset. And even though he's changed course, right, he's actually gone in a different direction, he has not entered a larger mind. He hasn't put on the mind of Christ. He hasn't, he hasn't stepped into something new. He's just complying. 
And so my question for us today, and the thing that I want you to walk with this week, is what's it going to take for you to transform? Jonah's not going to transform. I've told you the ending before, but he like the way this ends is Jonah was disobedient to God, never stepped into a larger mind, couldn't put on a new mind at all, and so now is miserable for, I mean, apparently the rest of time. I, I don't know. Whenever he goes. And I've been wondering, you know, what would it take for him to change? But I think the question that the authors actually want us to ask reading this is, what does it take for us to change? Because he knows that the, the, the author is setting up this person that's miserable, that doesn't change. And I think the question to us then is, if you don't want to end up miserable like that, how do we step into a larger mind that God is calling us to? Jonah can't love his enemy. This is the larger mind he can't step into. This is the repentance that he doesn't have the capability of accepting, of walking with. What's it going to take for us to change? What does it take for us to transform? And we have all of these goals as a church right now. For Matthew 25, we want to dismantle structural racism. We want to eradicate systemic poverty. We want to become a vital congregation. That's going to require us to step into something new, something larger than ourselves. And I wonder how we do that. I really do. For so many of us, we're so used to going one way and doing things in, in one direction and, and being stuck there. I'm including myself in that. But what's it going to take for us to change and transform? Jonah's not able to do it. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. I want you to just sit with that. What's it going to take for you to transform? Have you ever had points in your life where you have transformed? Have you ever seen big changes in yourself? Maybe you were doing something. Maybe you had a habit. And you said, you know what? I, I have to change this. This doesn't change. It's going to take me with it. What did you do? What happened there? Or would you say you did anything? Would you say it was the grace of God? What does it take for us to transform? And I'm asking myself this question right now because as husband, as a father, as a pastor, you begin to see what, what life is going to look like and what it's going to require. And I'm, I'm thinking a lot about my daughter and, and the person that I want to be for her. And I think, gosh, I'm not, I'm not that right now. I might be okay. I might be good enough. But if I want to be the best I can be for my family, for this church, for the community, what is it going to take for me to transform? And that's kind of connected to that question of disobedience, isn't it? And I gave you the silly examples of uh, putting the toilet paper roll back on the toilet paper um, rack when you're, you, know, you get a new one, or uh, taking the trash out and not stuffing it down. Those are, those are silly ways that we can transform just maybe through mindfulness, but that deeper change. Where does that come from? 
What would it mean for you personally to step into a larger mind? To put on the mind of Christ? I hope you'll meditate on that this week. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you again for this time. And God, as we look at this example of Jonah who is unable to change and unable to, to transform, I pray that you would help us ask the question, what's it going to take for us to transform? How can we step into a larger mind? So Lord, give us that deeper consciousness. Show us your love and your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.